0: Welcome to another episode of Max Planck, Florida's Neurotransmissions. I'm Misha, and with me is Joe. Hi. So as we talk about a lot, we are based in Max Planck here in Florida, and we might be a
1: little institute, but we are not small. Um, We even had our own conference. That's right. In uh, February of this year, we had our biennial uh, Neural Circuits Research Conference, which we call Sunposium. Because it's sunny here. Because it's sunny, and it's like symposium, but with sun on it. Um, I hope our readers get it, listeners Our readers will definitely get it. Um, Yeah, and that's biennial like every two years, not the other one. So come visit us in 2019. Yeah, in 2019 we'll have another one of these things. Uh, This year it was at the Palm Beach County Convention Center. Um, We had two days of really great scientific talks, and there's a poster session, so it's a great place for... Uh, people of any, you know, part of the academic research world to come present their work, basically, and and, and
0: obviously we chose uh, to take this opportunity to meet with some of the speakers and uh, talk to them on our show.
1: Yeah, and we have a pretty interesting cross section of uh, of guests. Um, and today we thought we'd kick things off with a conversation we had with. Um, you know, a real major figurehead in, in neuroscience.
0: Uh, but you know, j- before we dive into that, uh, all these conversations were just like our SFN episodes recorded on the, uh, sort of to say conference floor. Um, so you will hear right. background noise, uh, from people kind of uh, far away. And, um, we do apologize for that. Uh, we still haven't gotten the right microphones, I would say, but we will soon. <laughs> <Hopefully>. probably
1: <laughs> probably yeah if we do more of these live episodes we'll uh we'll find a way to uh you know get the right equipment for the job done um yeah so today we're going to talk to tom Suthoff. he's uh you might know him from his work uh receiving the nobel prize yeah with, of of uh of that's, many a, that's honors a good that job said. to to have um he's uh He's one of the the fathers of our our study of synaptic transmission um and um, neurotransmission neurotransmission oh, yeah exactly cool that we named our podcast after what he uh after some of his many discoveries i think very cool um so yeah he he's uh he's he's known majorly for a lot of his if i'm remembering this correctly uh findings in the uh synaptic mechanisms for releasing uh Um, for vesicle release and releasing neurotransmitters into the synaptic cleft and things like that. Um, But today we actually didn't talk very much about his science per se. We actually just wanted to pick his brain about uh, the state of basic science research in the United States. So uh, we started off by just asking him about uh, a recent op-ed article that he'd written. uh, Is my microphone working? You're good. A recent op-ed article that he'd written for the Washington Post on um, why... So many pharmaceutical trials are essentially giant wastes of money, and he has a lot of really interesting things to say about that. All right, let's hear it. We're joined by Dr. Thomas Sudhoff. He's the Abram Goldstein professor uh, uh, in the School of Medicine at Stanford University. He's an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, a professor of mo- molecular and cellular physiology, and a professor by courtesy of Neurology, Neurological Sciences, and Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Stanford, and he is the uh, 2013 recipient, uh, along with uh, Rothman and Sheckman, for the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. And today, we're going to talk to him about a recent op-ed piece that that you wrote for the Washington Post just last month, um, highlighting what uh, you see as... um, Maybe one of the reasons why some medical trials are, as you call them, sort of blind shots, moonshots in the dark. So, what do you mean by a, a, a moonshot in the dark when it comes to medical trials?
2: My op ed piece was motivated by the observation that there is a tremendous pressure to proceed towards clinical trials nowadays a pressure that often leads to trials being conducted before the actual data warrant such trials. I am very much for clinical trials. I think clinical trials are terrific. I think they're necessary, but they have to be planned well because of their enormous expense. A clinical trial can easily cost in excess of a hundred million dollars, sometimes a billion dollars. It's money that could otherwise be devoted to research. So we have to make sure that clinical trials are only conducted when there is a reason to do it, not just on the chance that it might work, because any money spent on clinical trials is a lost opportunity. In addition, it decredits science, it makes the credibility of science less valuable, because people think, why would they do a clinical trial if there wasn't any science, and they don't realize that there wasn't any science to start off with.
0: Right. Is there, is there a reason why do, uh, you think that uh, pharmaceutical companies are willing to jump the gun on such an expensive <clears throat> thing? Is it that they think that by the time there is science to back up something and back up a clinical trial, maybe another company will jump, them, uh, jump to it or something?
2: There are many factors that make pharmaceutical companies or foundations do clinical trials prematurely. The pharmaceutical industry usually is a little more careful, although sometimes, like in the case I alluded to in that op-ed piece, even the pharmaceutical company jumps the gun or does stuff that they shouldn't do if they thought about it. Um, In this case, Eli Lilly went ahead with a clinical trial that was incredibly expensive because they had already invested a lot of money. You know, when you already spend a lot of money, you're more likely to spend more. And because in previous failed trials, they felt there was a trend. And if they did it just a little more, Uh, directed towards that trend, they thought that they might actually see something positive. In addition, the incredible need for drugs that will actually help in Alzheimer's disease and the large potential payoff for the company played major roles in motivating the company to go through with a clinical trial that I think would have been predict- predicted to fail and did fail.
1: So one of the things you talked about today in your talk, which I I actually I didn't realize, um, but one of the early uh, discoveries of norexins that you made um, was when you found that it was a receptor for the a toxin of the black widow spider. Now, I wonder if thinking back to you know, when you first started working on um, presynaptic um, mechanisms of vesicle release and and, and, um, and this sort of thing, did you have a, a, a translational neuroscience perspective in mind, or were you very much a, a basic science? Um, let's figure out the mechanisms of this thing and move forward, kind of guy.
2: In my view, the division between basic and translational is rather artificial. I think that nowadays in neuroscience there is too much emphasis on translational neuroscience which makes people forget the needs to actually understand the basis for disease. What I mean with that statement is that if you try to research a disease without understanding the mechanisms underlying the disorder, the hopes for identifying new treatments are close, are very low. So it's interesting historically that most effective drugs to neuropsychiatric disorders were discovered by serendipity. They were not discovered based on a Rational research program That Fact Illustrates How little we know About the brain And Mirrors the fact That There are just Very few drugs To start off with Because serendipity Doesn't happen very often And you can't Plan on serendipity If you really want to Make progress In treating Diseases of the brain You have to actually treat the disease, which means you have to understand the disease, which means you have to understand what happens when something goes wrong, which means you have to understand what happens when it doesn't go wrong. Thus, in my view, the division between translational and basic neuroscience is artificial, and we should basically accept that an understanding of fundamental processes is necessary for an understanding of any disease processes.
0: So, do you think this is a a realistic thing that we can convince, uh, I guess, both institutes and, you know, realistically, the people who fund our research, right? So, basic, basic science is, in our minds, obviously, a very important and great thing. But it's hard to convince certain funding bodies, uh, who you know want to cure Alzheimer's within a year, five years,
1: you know, or even at some level, the American people, right. taxpayers, or that so. Sort of at which thing. point
0: do we say, you know, we understand enough about the brain that we can uh, now develop a drug
2: for Alzheimer's? It's a great question. We have to start with the scientific community. I believe that many of us have exaggerated the advances made often for rather mercenary reasons and as a result implanted in the public this idea that we know so much about the brain. We have to explain to the public and to the politicians that directing money primarily at translational research is a moonshot in the dark. And will lead to basically a lot of money thrown out of the window or shot into the, into the sky or whatever. <laughs> yeah.
1: that's cool. Well, um, we don't want to take up too much of your time. I just wanted to comment on one thing that was in the news. And um, if this is if this is overly political, like maybe we can just cut this section. But on Friday, the House of Representatives passed a bill called the scientific research in the National Interest Act, the goal being to have all grants funded by the National Science Foundation be in, quote, the national interest. At what point do we as scientists owe um, some kind of um, explanation of the reasoning why we think a particular line of uh, research is important when putting it in the context of maybe a politically charged um, framework like the national interest uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily flow
2: very easily my personal view here is that there's nothing wrong with demanding that science should be in the national interest I would have reservations concerns and even uh, fear for our science and in fact our very civilization if knowledge was not considered to be in the national interest. I consider the acquisition and communication of knowledge very much in the national interest and I would think that science at the most fundamental level will be in the national interest. So to me that is an obvious requirement. We as scientists are actually contributing, I believe, tremendously to the national interest. And science of course should be to the national interest. The problems only arise if there are people, you know, decision makers who believe that some science may not be in the national interest and some science may be in the national interest. The very nature of the quest for knowledge is that when you search for it, you don't have it. Deciding what is in the national interest before you actually know what you're going to learn is a very hard thing. So that is what I would warn for against. I think that having the requirement that science should be in the national interest is self-evidence, and it should be. I mean, the taxpayer pays for it, and the taxpayer should pay for things that are worth doing. So I don't have anything in principle against that. My concerns are rather in how, what it actually means in right. practical terms. Right.
1: Yeah. Very well said. Well, thank you very much for your time, Professor Sudhoff, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Florida. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, thank you uh, to Dr. Sudoff for chatting with us. I hope you guys um, learned a little bit of something from that interview. I know we definitely both did.
1: Yeah. Uh, it was really uh, nice of him to sit down and talk with us. Uh, it's always a great honor to talk to a person of his stature. Um, mm-hmm. And Because um, he's tall. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Nailed it. Uh, it's nice to look up to people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, So, yeah, that concludes our first uh, episode in this series of uh, live interviews from Sunposium. Um, Please
0: stay tuned for more.
1: Yeah, we'll have uh, another episode next week with uh, some great tool builders, some people who are really pushing the boundaries of what we're able to do with neural circuits, and then we're going to hear from some people who are uh, paving the way for understanding how uh, the brain is controlling natural behaviors, behaviors that people and animals do on a day-to-day basis. So we have A lot of uh, really great uh, conversations coming up to to listen to. All
0: right. So uh, thank you for listening. Um, You can find us on Twitter uh, at NeuroPodcast. I'm at SaladZombie. And you are? At JW Science. That's right. Also, please follow us on Facebook if you'd like. Uh, The Neurotransmissions. Mox Blank, Florida's Neurotransmissions. I guess that's our Facebook name. That's right.
1: Uh, Tell your family members to listen to the podcast. Tell your grandmother. (laughs) Tell your aunts and uncles. We're a
0: great way of getting people into podcasts. Yeah. If they never heard a podcast before, start with the heavy neuroscience stuff.
1: Right. And uh, a special thanks to the Scientific Communications Office here at Max Planck, Florida, Uh, especially Miguel for for coordinating all the recordings and stuff, and uh, thanks to... Uh, the IT department here at MPFI, who also helped put together all the uh, podcasting stuff at the at the conference. So, uh, until next week, talk to you later. Bye bye.